on the internet, being prolific is the key to building an audience. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume. I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Because see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap. Like, you know, back in the day, like you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. David, welcome. Uh, 2 p.m. Polymathic. This is episode two. It's glad to have you. I'm Webb Smith, and uh, I'm excited to kick things off with you. Uh, listen, I, I know that a lot of people in, the, in this audience in particular may not know who you are yet, but um, I, I think that th that's going to change in, in short order. So um, tell me a little bit about why you're here and like your early education. Yeah, so my early education didn't really happen in school. One of the coolest things that my father always did when I was a kid was whenever I had a passion, he just fueled that as much as he possibly could, no matter what it was. You know, I didn't really do well in school and it was a bit difficult for me because I always felt like I was dumb, stupid. And I remember going to reading comprehension tutoring when I was in third grade and being in there saying, oh my goodness, am I going to be some kind of failure? And whenever the grades came out, you know, kids would brag about their grades and mine were always the worst. And so very early on, I felt like the normal systems, the normal ways of doing things just weren't going to work for me. And so there were a couple times, I think, when I was a kid that my parents saw that when I would get into something, I would get really into it. So in sixth grade, I we had a project called the iSearch, and my you could really just research anything. And I asked the question, how will the Boeing 787 fly? I was a big fan of airplanes. I had just um, gone on a small trip to Europe, and I had just looked at these, these, these massive machines that could soar through the air. And I said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that these things can 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 just transport you around planet Earth. And so I asked this question and my dad and I, we took a trip up to Seattle and I'm up in Seattle and I'm like studying the airplanes, looking at the very first 787. And I write this, this 60 page research paper on the aerodynamics of airplanes, the physics of flight. And then I started flying airplanes myself because there were some really cool free programs in the Bay Area. And it was just like one of those moments where once I had this kind of unbounded space where rather than the restrictions of a syllabus and the direction of a teacher, once I had an unbounded space where I could go learn something myself, like I bought the Jeppesen flight manual and I went through the entire thing just on my own and I worked with these these free flight flight instructors and stuff like that. Um, once I had that unboundedness, I just felt free to explore, and I actually surprised myself that I thought I didn't like learning when in fact I loved it. So let me get this straight: you were an average to sub-average student, sub-average, okay, and you, on your own volition, uh, took flight lessons, 
uh, practice. Fl- fl- explain what you mean by that. Like, you're, are you talking actual planes? Are yes. you talking simulators? Yes. Yeah, so like, talk more about that experience. Yeah. So two things stand out. So there was, uh, I grew up in San Francisco and there was a place in San Carlos down by where Facebook and Oracle is headquartered and it's called the Hiller Aviation Museum. And so <laughs> I used to, we lived on the Northern tip of San Francisco and I used to ask my parents every single weekend when I was a kid, Either when I was young, hey, can we go watch the planes land at San Francisco airport? And then when I was older, can we go to Hiller Aviation? What I say is, look, kids, all of this aircraft business and how to use them and how to fly with them and design them and all that stuff has to do with mathematics and sciences. The museum had this game that you could play. And basically what you would do is you would simulate the job of of a flight controller. And I ended up over time getting so good at that game that by the end I had the entire list of top 20 scores. I set all the records and then Hiller Aviation launched this Young Eagles program. And what that allowed you to do was, I mean, I'm like a sixth grader to get into the front seat of an airplane and to literally fly it with my own two hands. And I just, as a 11 year old kid was flying airplanes, the program was entirely free and it was nothing short of magical to get in the front seat of an airplane to talk to the control tower, to have the people in the control tower know that I was this 11 year old kid because my voice was so high at the time and to feel like I was doing things at 11 years old that 11-year-old kids aren't designed to do. And at some point, I need to go back to that organization and just say thank you because it was it was all free and it opened my mind so much. Do you foresee yourself ever going back to that passion and maybe trying to gain uh, your, your private pilot's license or anything like that? Almost certainly. Almost okay. certainly. Okay. So this is sixth grade. Let's move on to like high school, college. What did you go to college? Like how did how did that look? Yeah. So college was college was tricky. Um so I went to college to 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 play golf and I didn't know that. Um yeah, so this is a my my you know, my whole life is has been a story of failing at the conventional path. And being creative and finding a way in some crazy, just creative way to get into whatever it is that I want. And I had like a 2.7 GPA in high school and I had really poor SAT scores. And I remember one night. I just like to note that I also had a 2.7 GPA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I had a 2.7, but I was like pretty good at golf. And so I remember one night sitting on my bed and I did this like crazy cross reference of golf schools that were division one, but not so good division one. So I could play there warm weather and then not a super religious school. So I basically cross referenced like six schools, mostly in Texas, Northern Carolina, South Carolina. Where'd you end up? I ended up at Elon. Okay. And the way that this happened was I, I, I had a meeting with the golf coach and he wasn't at he wasn't in his office when when I got there. We had this meeting planned. So I said, okay, how do I figure this out? And so I looked up a map. I looked up all of the nearby golf courses. And my dad and I, we drove to every single one because I suspected that they would be practicing at one. Finally, we got to Alamance Country Club. I saw some Elon bags on the course, went up to a guy who ended up becoming my friend, Will Diani. I said, hey, can you put me in touch with Bill Morningstar? Ended up talking to him for an hour and a half. 
And one week later, he calls me, says, hey, you're in as a golf recruit. And I would have never gotten into Elon had my dad and I not driven around. Those That's golf an courses. incredible way of getting into college. Yeah. Elon's a good school. It North, is. North, North Carolina, correct? Yeah. Okay. That's incredible. Um, I, I actually see strains of that technique in your life right now. So I think that that's really interesting. So you were at Elon. Did you graduate? How did that go? Yeah. So, 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 so I got in and my spring semester of my freshman year, I got a 2.3 GPA. And my parents were really worried about me. And so there was a, a guy named Phil Smith, and he sat me down for coffee at the beginning of my sophomore year. And he said, I'm worried about you. Your parents are worried about you. Teachers are worried about you. Uh, what's going on, man? And I got all swept up into the college drinking scene and really the societal idea of what college should be, which – actually for me ended up just being a crazy party um, my freshman year and I had to look myself in the mirror and say okay I need to get a 3.5 GPA this semester otherwise I'm gonna have some really bad consequences and at the time um, I had just been accepted to be sports director for our college television station called Elon Local News and an anchor for a show called Elon Phoenix Weekly which aired on ESPN in North Carolina every Sunday morning and so I had to get my GPA up and I had to run both of these these news organizations. And I didn't think I could do it. I, I, I really said no way. But I did it. I ended up getting a a a three six that semester. And what was amazing to me was that I could actually it was the first time in my life, and like you know this intellectually, but until you feel it, it was the first time in my life where I realized that if I worked hard at something and came up with a plan and allocated my time well, all the things that we know, that it would actually make my life better. Really and interesting. <clears throat> what year is this? This was very recently. So that was 2013. How old are you now? I'm 25. Jeez. You and Nick Sharma. Yeah. Young, young I love young that kids. guy. Uh, I remember I was with you when I realized that Nick was only, what, 21, 22? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was really, uh, really tough for me. <laughs> I, I felt old for the first time. Hmm. Uh, so 2013, you're done with school. 2016, I ended Two, up 2016, yep. you're done with school. That's three years ago. You've 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 gone from zero to sixty pretty quickly. What was your what was your first gig? Like, what was your immediate post collegiate passion? Yeah, once again, I I I still only graduated from college with like a with like a two nine. My grades didn't stay that high for for the rest of college. So once again, I couldn't do a normal job path. And I knew that I didn't want to be in some corporate environment. So there was a day where it was a Tuesday morning. I skipped. It was one of those days where the, it's raining so hard that the rain actually feels like it's coming sideways. And no matter how big your umbrella is, you're just going to get wet. So I didn't go to class. And that day, The Ringer had launched their Medium publication. The Ringer Podcast Network brought to you as always. And a company called Cycle had just launched in New York. That's Jason, Jason Stein's Stein. company. Yeah. And I tweeted about the strategy, an eight-part tweet storm about what is the thinking going on there. And Jason Stein slid, in my, slid into my DMs. He said, hey, how would you like to work for us? And I got on the phone with their director of HR and the rest was history. So Jason Stein – Got me my first job, CEO of the company, wow. and uh, I ended up being the third person 
on that team, we did, I think our first year, I think we did like $44 million in revenue with three salespeople. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I accounted for maybe 5% of that, but, <laughs> but still it was, uh, we worked really hard. So funny story for the, for the audience, the cycle, uh, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the agency side of the business, mm-hmm. laundry service, correct? Mm-hmm. Handled the marketing and advertising for Papa John's. Yep. Jason was on the call when Papa John dropped his famous words that removed him, removed his name from the Louisville Stadium. Mm-hmm. And on the spot, Jason dropped Papa John as a client. The face of Papa John's pizza is changing. This is after the company's founder admitted using the N-word during a conference call. John Schnatter's name and face have been scrubbed now from the company website and the marketing materials. He also resigned as chairman of the board. And the University of Louisville is even removing the Papa John's name from its football stadium. And then he left the company, what, a month later? Something like that. To start uh, Stein... Yeah, it's like a think of it as like a private equity fund. Right. Uh, remarkable person, one of the smartest people I've had the opportunity to meet. Uh, Certainly, I, I look forward to maybe having a conversation with him in the future. So that's quite the start. Uh, that's an impressive organization. You got probably the dream job if you want to ever move into media at all. Like you've got a great start there. How long were you there? What did you do afterwards? Yeah. So at the time, I remember it was a Tuesday night, late December, and this week was wild because uh, we were doing social media for Twitter, Twitter, Apple, Beats by Dre, Jordan Brand, and some of the most culturally relevant brands in the world. And I just thought I was king. I was 21 years old. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. And we knew what clients we were going to get the next year, like Bud Light. And so... I get a call on a on a Thursday night and I'm this was right before Christmas saying we want to give you a raise. We want to give you a 10% raise, uh, a decent bonus for for this year and I said, "Oh my goodness, this is going perfectly." We go on the the winter break. I come back first Friday, January 5th, 2017. I remember this so clearly. I get called into the office of my boss and very unexpectedly just get laid off seven months after I had entered the professional work world. And so I went from thinking that I was on cloud nine to now having no idea what I was going to do. And I felt like everything had been stripped from under me and I had no idea where I was going to go next. How many days or weeks or months was it between the 10% raise and you being two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. Do you know why? Yeah. You know, they restructured the, the, the corporate story as they restructured the business. Maybe the real story is I wasn't a particularly good employee. I wasn't a particularly good writer at the time, actually. And let's come back to that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it was always hard for me to be in a job because 
I remember I got called in to my office one day and or to the boss's office and he said, I want you to stop thinking like Jeff Bezos. You need to think like a salesperson. And my whole mind operated in terms of thinking systematically. How do different flows work together? How is this company's business model actually working? What is our spot in the advertising agency? And to focus on on sales decks felt so myopic to me. And Truthfully, I think that they recognized that I just wasn't the right fit for that job. It always felt like two puzzle pieces that looked like they would work together from afar, but from up close, it, they just didn't click. Are you still in contact with Jason? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so moving forward, you you left Cycle, mm-hmm. and did you freelance? Did you... I did something crazy. I made 114 YouTube videos in 114 days. So each one was six to eight minutes long. And when I was in college, I used to watch Casey Neistat videos every single night. I didn't miss a single one for like two years. The guy, it was such an inspiration to me, probably my biggest inspiration towards the end of college and early in my career. And I just tried to do that. And so I I went out and, and, and just tried the vlogging thing and... After 114 days, I had a grand total of 31 subscribers. I absolutely failed. Let's let's pause really quickly. Uh, have you read James Clear's Atomic Habits? Of course. Do you remember the part of the book where he talks about the experiment in the in the photography class, where mm-hmm. the classroom is broken up between two groups? the The first group, Group A, they are tasked with taking as many photos as possible. Mm-hmm. Group B, they're tasked with taking the best photos mm-hmm. as possible. The, the The professor assumed that Group B would have the highest quality photos because mm-hmm. in his mind, quantity never equals quality. Mm-hmm. However, it was Group A that ended up with the better photos because they did so much over so little time, so much repetition, and... Because of the repetition, they tweaked their habits, they tested, they experimented, they improved their skills, their methods, and they ended up with the best photos. Yep. Uh, like your 114 videos, uh, 2 p.m. started off as 180 letters. Right. Over almost 180 days. Yep. Which was incredibly, it was incredibly inconvenient for me because I had a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Were you at Gear Patrol at the time? I started at Gear Patrol, yeah. Dude, so I, after I left laundry service, Gear Patrol was one of the places that I thought about going. I bet I was one of your first 1,000 subscribers. I was on the 2 p.m. train early, <laughs> early, and I watched you closely when I was at laundry service. Well, thank, that means a lot to me. Uh, that's that's incredible. I, I think that there is value. What I was trying to say is that that 114... YouTube videos, which I actually remember looking at a few of them. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and I'm not the type to subscribe to anything on YouTube. It's just not my medium. Like, I just don't. I watch a ton of videos. I don't subscribe to videos. Uh, so I'm sorry for not being number 32. But uh, but uh, it did you it did you it did wonderful things for you. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to admit. So I wanted I want to discuss what you learned from that 114 videos. Yes, I learned one thing that on the Internet. Being prolific is the key to building an audience. It is as simple as that. And I learned about 
I built an intuition for the relationship between quality and quantity. And I've gone back because my big project now is building a manufacturing line for ideas. So I believe that once you have the what I teach my writing students to do, so I run a writing school called Rite of Passage, and one of the first things that we do is I give them a note-taking system. And it sounds so trivial, but people always ask me, how do I write better? How do I write better? How do I write better? And what the intuition is, is go read On Writing by Stephen King. Go read Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And I would say, actually, the first thing that you should do if you want to write better is to build a note-taking system. Because what writing is, and, and this is what we call modern writing, like once you have all of your ideas in your pocket, modern writing isn't created, it's assembled, okay? So basically, I think of ideas like a manufacturing line, where if you can have a really good system, then anything can go through that system. You have a kind of rigid system which allows you to be super creative in what you do. And so because of this quest, I've gone back and I've read the literature from the late 20th century manufacturing world. You think the, uh, this great development, we can have uh, further development, the opportunities for young men? Well, as today is the word, a few years ago, I think so. Yes, indeed. If a young man makes up his mind to work, there's no limit to what he can do. Right around the time when we reached peak manufacturing in America and then with the development of companies like Toyota in Japan, they figured out things about manufacturing lines and assembly lines that actually is kind of forgotten knowledge among the technosphere right now. And what Toyota figured out is that their quality and quantity aren't at odds with each other. They're actually two of the same thing. And so what they did was by producing more by producing more cars, they also were able to raise the quality. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with writing. I think going back exactly to the photo experiment that you alluded to earlier, that creating more, creating more often actually raises the quality of what you do. I won't argue with you because I'm, I'm actually noticing it in my own writing. Um, you know, I think that there's something in us when you feel like you're not good enough, that really sets us on a path if mm -hmm. you have the right mind, right? So when you were probably being told that you weren't the best writer at Cycle mm -hmm. or the best whatever they needed you to be, that obviously set something off in you that if I had to venture to guess, um, if if you had the same opportunities now as you had then, you would probably have a wonderful position at Cycle now as something of a creative, mm -hmm. highly paid, you know, I, I would have to guess that that would be the case. Hmm. Obviously, Jason's not there anymore. The organization is completely different, so on and so forth. Um, when I was working uh, towards the beginning of 2 p.m., one thing that I would hear was I, you know, I was, I outsourced some of my work to some of my work to this client, hmm. and they said, uh, you're not a good writer, so let's not focus on that, mm -hmm. right? Let's 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 do something else with you because this is not your thing, right? And in my mind, I really just decided to work on making making that a thing. Maybe mm -hmm. not my my only thing, but something that I was really prolific at, yes, proficient and prolific. Yeah. So, um, tell me more about how you flipped that switch to. To go from laid off employee to 
the the mastermind behind the rite of passage. Yeah. So I just, with all due respect, I agree you weren't a good writer. And I've texted you this. Your writing has <clears throat> become so much better. I was just reading, I think it was Linear Commerce Note 314, and it was right after you had left Augusta. And the way that you described what was happening at Augusta and the specificity with which you described how many sales actually come from Augusta with those very specific numbers, but then also the imagery that you shared, the way that you begun that note with Augusta National, ended that note with Augusta National, and closed that circle where you began, you wouldn't have done that three years ago. (laughs) You would not have done that three years ago. And I've told you this directly. But I think that in terms of writing, there's 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 two things that you really want to focus on. And and it really goes back to Toyota. So the first thing is if you're in any kind of manufacturing plant, what you want is you want high quality materials at the beginning, right? Like if you talk to a chef, right? One thing that any chef will say is, yes, I can work wonders with food, but I can't do it with low quality food. I need really good inputs. And so the place where good writing begins is way up the stack in terms of what you consume. If you don't, if you're not having good conversations, if you're not consuming quality ideas, then it hurts the rest of the system. So it all begins there where our outputs are a direct result of our inputs. And then the second thing is fast feedback loops where the internet is a bi-directional two-way medium in a way that television never was. You publish something and whether it's a tweet, you have feedback within five minutes. If you publish an email and you ask for questions, you have feedback on on how people are receiving that in two days. And so what you do is over time, and this happens at a very deep intuitive level, you actually build this subconscious intuition on what resonates and what doesn't, what's interesting and what isn't. And what writing actually is in terms of the writing that we do online It's not good writing, like Stephen King would say, or like J.K. Rowling. It's a very different kind of writing. The essence of our kind of good writing is good ideas. And until we can have an intuition for what's interesting and what ideas are undervalued, then we can't begin to write well. So I would think it's not how to write well. That 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 gets people using flowery language and, and weird sentence structure. It's how to have interesting ideas. And commute and communicate them with clarity and concision. Interesting. So for you taking notes, that's the input. That's the input. That's the input. So that's the the the, the iron ore at Toyota. The the quality iron, the quality plastics, mm-hmm. uh, the great rubber for the tire, so on and so forth. Um, that's really interesting. So you're talking about. This is 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Little later, so 1970s, 1980s. Okay, for Toyota. Yep. Uh, you mentioned earlier about other maybe domestic manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Did you pull any lessons from them? I ask because I recently watched uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Mm. And I don't know if you've seen the movie I yet. haven't. Tell me about it. Uh, it's really interesting because uh, Ford is known for its systems. Yep. Right? Uh, what struck me about the film is that I left thinking that Enzo Ferrari was a legend. Mm-hmm. The movie made him more of a legend than it made Henry Ford too. Hmm. Henry Ford too appeared to be a victim of his systems. Too much bureaucracy around him. 
everyone, you know, 17 men in the same room. They all look exactly alike. They're all wearing the same black suit and same black tie. Mm-hmm. Imagine a, a NASA control room with a black jacket on top of their white shirts and black ties. And that's that's what you see in Ford's boardrooms. Mm-hmm. There was a scene where uh, Matt Damon's character, uh, Carol Shelby, was sitting in the waiting room, prepared to get reamed out by Henry Ford, too. And he watches a folder go from person to person like a conveyor belt. Uh, by his estimation, 17 people touched the folder before it landed into the, before it landed into the hands of Henry Ford, too. Mm-hmm. And one thing he said was, you can't innovate by committee. Like At some point, someone has to be in control and have the ability to make all the decisions without so much input mm-hmm. from other people. Yes. Uh, I found that to be really interesting because Ford probably could have done a better job had they said, Shelby, here is your team. You will not have any interference from mm-hmm. the marketing department, from the engineering department, from the design department, from the C-suite. Do your thing, win the race with your people. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's what it was supposed to be, and that's not how it ended up being. And so the movie ultimately, in my opinion, ended tragically for a few people. Christian Bale's character uh, was a tragic character, in my opinion. It taught me a lot about, well, it taught me about management inputs and outputs hmm. and what happens when you try to innovate in an organization where there's a lot of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. I digress. Uh, If any of you have ever worked in an environment where you're consulting a large organization, Mm -hmm. uh, 2PM is, for instance, a a partner to Verizon Media Group. You have to be really comfortable dealing with that type of bureaucracy if you're trying to innovate. I found that to be the most interesting part of the the manufacturing process at big companies. Yeah, so Ford is a really interesting topic. And so I'm going to just say... A couple things. So the first thing is what Henry Ford was able to achieve in terms of the assembly line was an incredible achievement. And I think it actually is a great and an apt metaphor for the story of American progress from the beginning of the 20th century to the the mid-late 20th century, where the famous line is you can have whatever car you want as long as it's black. And but what he the was able T. to do, right, exactly, the Model T, beginning with that. It, it dried fa- 85% faster than other, other colors. Right. Like, it was an incredible achievement. And what he, he, just the amazing idea here was the people stay still, the cars move. And you have kind of like that conveyor belt that you were talking about earlier. And I had the privilege of visiting the Ford factory in Dearborn a couple months ago. And it was transformative for me. I was in here just watching how this assembly line works. And what you have is you have each and every person. It is the peak industrial age, peak specialization, because what you have is – so I went to the F-150 plant, and I was just watching the creation of red and black F-150s. And you have people, and their entire job is to screw in one screw on one F-150 over – and over, over and over again. And it was just like the very most specialized thing. But what happened, Ford kind of got stuck in a little local maxima there. 
And what happened with Toyota, one of Toyota's big innovations, and remember, Toyota went on to be really much more profitable than any of the American companies. Not only better quality, but more profitable. We had like the General Motors bankruptcy and stuff like that. But what Toyota had to do was they had to take the same assembly line and actually put on new cars and to switch things up very fast. And what Toyota was able to figure out was before, if you needed to switch something up, my goodness, it would take a week, two weeks. Toyota was able to do it in like 10, 20 minutes. And so they could use the same assembly line and have different cars on it. And it was like a new, just a new way of thinking, almost kind of disruptive in the Clayton Christensen sense of the term, a new way of thinking that Toyota just wasn't, or, or, or that Ford just wasn't able to get to. And 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 that's why ford was 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 really threatened by a lot of the japanese manufacturers so for clarity uh one thing that david is talking about is there was a time period between the 70s and 80s where foreign cars dominated uh domestic vehicles in the united states uh and ironically this has impacted my life because my dad grew up believing that if you wanted a quality car, it had to be a Toyota. Mm-hmm. And so we had two Toyotas growing up. Me too. And uh, this is a really frustrating story and a, <laughs> a sidebar. I saved – this is such a poetic moment because I saved $6,700 uh, my, by my 16th birthday to buy a car. And I, you asked me how I did that. I mowed lawns, but I also had summer internships at Time Warner, which obviously influenced me later on in my life. Uh, but I wanted that car to be a Ford Mustang hatch, hatchback. Hmm. That was my dream. Mm-hmm. Like even if it didn't work, I, I would, you know, whatever. That was my car. Uh, two two buddies of mine had Ford Mustangs from the '60s. I really wanted one too. And uh, my dad picks me up from home. Drives me to my school parking lot, straight Jesuit, Jesuit College Preparatory in Houston, Texas, <clears throat> and he's like, "I have your, I have your, I have your car for you." And in the car, in the parking lot is a 1991 silver Toyota Camry, and I was like, "Dad, wh- uh, where, where is it?" He's like, "That's, that's it." My dad took the money, uh, <laughs> bought a Toyota Camry, and delivered the quote unquote surprise to me. Um, and for a long time, I sort of resented him for that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, I guess now that I've gotten older, I see, I, I saw the value in, uh, in that decision. Um, a 65 Mustang probably wouldn't have worked very, very often. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Toyota Camrys are indestructible, essentially. They're but- indestructible. So we have, my parents, both of our cars are used Toyota Camry station wagons. One is 94, so as old as I am. One is 96, as old as my sister, and they have cigarette butts everywhere. And just whoever was the person who owned it before just smoked cigarettes and got and, and got the ashes all over the seats, kind of burned the seats. But you know what? It's been 25 years since our green one was made, and it still drives. <sighs> how, how ironic. Um, so... The theme of this conversation thus far has been manufacturing. Uh, You mentioned the word prolific. You've illustrated uh, writing in the context of manufacturing, inputs, outputs, ideas, production. 
Um, tell me more about what you're doing now and how you've applied those principles to rite of passage. Uh, specifically, tell me more about how you built your audience on that nature of prolific output. Yep. So in Zero to One, Peter Thiel, who's influenced me a lot, asks, just talks about the importance of having a secret, something you believe about the world that other people don't believe, something you think is true that other people would think is crazy. And the belief that I have is that right now, almost anybody can build an online audience because the demand for high quality ideas far exceeds the supply of them. And opportunity always happens in shifts. And what's happening right now is we're seeing a massive transformation in the way that information flows, where, say, 2010 – I mean that's sort of the story of this decade – that 2010, we were very dependent on mainstream media. 2020, now we're beginning to see a topsy-turvy transition. By 2030, the arbitrage opportunities will be gone. And what I am – Like what I really feel a calling to do right now is to help people build an online audience, bring out the smartest people I can find, and get them to start sharing their ideas by learning how to take hazy ideas in their brain and turn them into concrete words on the page. And basically build a online website, which is your online infrastructure, build a distribution channel, best one is email, and then also to learn how to systematically take those ideas, put them into writing, and use feedback and the support of their peers and collaborators to improve the quality of their ideas. And so I run a writing school called Rite of Passage, which you could think of as, sure, like I teach people how to write, but I think at a fundamentally deeper level, I teach them how to be citizens of the internet, citizens of the modern world, where rather than meeting people in person, you meet them on the internet. Rather than trying to get a job with a resume, you get a job through through writing. And I teach them to just be prolific creators because in the same way that you – you know, we talked about the importance of consumption. In the same way that you improve the quality of what you eat by learning to cook, you improve the quality of what you read and consume by learning to write. So let's back up a little bit. You can't start rite of passage. First of all, what's the what's the price? The products that you sell. Give me give throw out a number. Yeah, so it's eight hundred dollars for the essential edition, but that will be in probably twelve hundred to fifteen hundred by the end of twenty twenty. So you sell an eight hundred to fifteen hundred dollar product, right? Yep. So the audience probably skews heavily towards people that sell physical products. But I think everyone can have a respect for or some semblance of respect for <clears throat> someone that can move an $800 product through through digital channels. That's mm-hmm. really difficult, mm-hmm. right? I know because I, I have one that, that is that expensive. Um, so tell me more about how you built that audience. I think you said earlier today that you, you had 1,000 Twitter followers two years ago. Mm-hmm. You are at 31,000 now. You are not sensational on Twitter at all. You don't pine for, for retweets or anything like that. Your audience has grown because of your ideas. Hmm. You've, you've, 
you are a constant flow of ideas that no one else that I know really thinks about. Hmm. You've influenced me in some ways. Uh, hopefully, you can say the same about me. 100%. I, I, I applaud how your consistency over time has produced the audience that you have now, which in result has become primed to buy these types of products. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the zero to one, because I, I don't think people realize that that's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right now I have 200 students in 28 countries. So we'll back up from, from that. So the way that this began was I, I see myself, you know, generational shifts, like two, three year gaps are actually beginning to mean something. So I think I'm a digital native in a way that you aren't. And it began, but I so, take offense to that. It, that's okay. So, so, so my senior year of, 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 of college, I went to one of my professors and with, with, with the arrogance that only a 21 year old college senior can say, I said, everything that you're teaching is obsolete. You just gave me the best education, the best education for 1995. But it is 2016. And so I recognized early that there was a shift here. And so what I did really was I spent a lot of time just sort of writing and I paid very close attention to, you know, a lot of people think of the internet as 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 kind of this flat plane, but where where everyone's kind of equal and everyone can sort of post equally and, and whatnot, the internet has tremendous reach inequality. And we're not talking about this as a society, how big the reach inequality is. And so what you want to do as a new creator is you want to pay attention to the peaks, the people who are following you with a big audience. Because if they can start sharing your work, then boom, their reach becomes yours. And so I think that there's two things. There's both, you could call it top of the funnel exposure, and then you could call it bottom of the funnel capture. So top of the funnel exposure for me was all about, I had people like Naval Ravikant was one of my first big fans. And I sort of paid attention to, okay, who's consuming my stuff, who isn't. And I had Naval Ravikant who I would basically, I would just write for what Naval would want to read because I would know that he would end up sharing because I got a sense of what his interests were. And he had 500,000 followers on Twitter. And then I did the same thing with Tyler Cowen because he has a blog with 2 million people. And I know exactly, you know, what would Tyler be interested in? And I use those people's reach to basically expand my audience as I began to start the fire, so to speak. But what I realized this year, and it was really surprising because it's really taken a, a the 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 growth trajectory has gotten steeper this year. Is that you also want bottom of the funnel capture, and w one of the other secrets that both you and I know is the power of email, where email is in particular a secret because email metrics aren't public, and so everything that happens in emails one on one. And once I started building an email list, the stickiness with my audience grew tremendously. And I've noticed that as your audience or as your writing becomes better, distribution becomes increasingly important. And because email is secret, people who don't have an email list of any kind, they don't realize how powerful that channel is. Because what we've seen is, you know, you could think of it like Stuart Brand has this pace layers theory of architecture, where if you look at a house, things change at different levels, right? So you have furniture, which moves around all the time. And then you have paintings on the wall, which might move around 
a little bit slower. And then you have, say, the actual build and the construction of the walls, which move around slower. And then you have the overall foundation, which moves around even slower, right? So different layers of the stack move at different speeds. And what we've seen this year, and I think that this has surprised us, right? We've looked at companies like Slack, which they've said, we're going to disrupt email, right? But what we've seen is sort of higher up in the architecture of the system, different apps are moving so fast and email is the thing that is proven resilient, right? It's like it's like when you're boogie boarding and you go underneath the wave. And so there's madness on top, but underneath it's quite calm. Like that is the thing that's stable. I think that the big lesson of the internet in the last five years is the stability of the internet and how central it is both to the architecture of the internet and to the culture of modern work. The stability of email. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really profound thought. <clears throat> um. One thing that you mentioned earlier, when it comes to email, and I read your emails uh, from time to time, uh, they're fascinating because you cover so many ideas. You cover your travel, things that you've learned in, in traditional education, things that you've seen in sport, whatever it is, you cover so many ideas through your email. Uh, tell me more about how you speak to people through your email like what does your email list look like uh do you know is it i'm gonna back up a little bit you are somewhat of like a warrior philosopher to me you hmm. know obviously naval probably has a, a lot of influence on you you cover you know this you know you cover a wide range of topics how do you use those topics in your email to keep people engaged is what i'm saying yeah. So, I mean, I think that one of the reasons that I'm really drawn to the stuff that you're doing, and I'm just going to take a quick tangent before I answer your question and talk about advertising, where what we've seen, and like I think that where a lot of the opportunities in, in, in the world of advertising and e-com right now are for people who are polymathic, right? Where what has happened is the world has really moved towards specialization, right? So in the world that you live in, we have people who are hyper-focused on Facebook ads. We have people who are hyper-focused on landing pages. We have people who are hyper-focused on all these different parts of the advertising stack. And this is what you've taught me, that we're now seeing the end of the arbitrage opportunities in social media, right? With paid media and the entire, like I'm a bit worried for some of those people because they're so specialized that they're unable to sort of catch their breath and go above water and see the landscape that exists. And the person who's influenced me most is Tyler Cowen. And Tyler Cowen is an economist to George Mason. He's written 17 books, used to write for the New York Times, now writes for Bloomberg. And he funds some of the work that I do. So he's a very close mentor, pretty formally, actually. And what he is, is he's the biggest generalist I know. He's been to 100 countries. He has his PhD in economics at Harvard. But if you talk to him about music, art, I mean, my goodness, we went to a jazz concert together. If you've talked to him about food, culture, whatever, he has an educated opinion there. And I think that basically the move towards specialization actually creates a demand for generalists. And what I try to do is in life, surprise my readers with, you have no idea what you're going to get this week, because then I force myself to surprise myself with all the new things that let's, I'm consuming. Let's say that again. Let's recap that for the audience. You said the move towards specialization has what? Has created demand for, for generalists. generalists. That's really interesting. I like that. 
And I think I think that you're correct. Obviously, I harp on specialization, especially in the context of marketing and branding. Uh, I harp on the dangers of it. Um, and it's really interesting because, and I know that you haven't answered the second part of the question yet, but I was on a I was on a board call for Commerce Next yesterday. Hmm. Forty of the brightest people in brand and retail, you know, I was almost afraid to speak because hmm. there are people that are on paper and, and probably actually a lot better than me at, at, at some of the stuff <clears throat> they were asking about new ideas, hmm. video, TikTok came up, ah, TikTok, got it. You know, I was like, ah, whatever. TikTok is going to come and go. I, you know, my daughter was talking about TikTok a year and a half ago. That arbitrage opportunity is almost gone. Hmm. You just don't know it yet. Um, and I wanted to say writing, like why aren't more brands spending time writing, having, you know, uh, some type of editorial calendar or, yeah, I thought about Nike for, for hmm. instance, you know, I think about when I see a Nike ad, the imagery is almost secondary to the copywriting. Yeah. Right. It's one word. It's one sentence rather that when I see that sentence, I'm like, oh my gosh, I couldn't have written that sentence. I think that there's a like a yearning for that. Like I wish that more brands spent time copywriting hmm. and and publishing more things that sort of describe the 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 mantra of the business or what the goal of the company is or just finding ways for people to engage in that way than than through whatever's next, right? Like everyone's trying to capture what's next and they're failing to realize that like you mentioned earlier, uh there's this subterranean tide that yes. if you catch it you know you're gonna find that it's compounding in some ways because mm -hmm. it's always going to be there nailed it and there are a few few brands a few people out there that that understand that and that's one of the takeaways that i hope that people can you know listen to this and and move forward with um because i've seen i think we've both seen the economic and the social benefits of that you know, the tricky thing here, though, is the way that the direct-to-consumer and e-com world is set up, though, as as I've learned from you, is we value growth more than we value high margins and profit. I'm trying to change that. Right. And you will change that. But that means that there is an arbitrage opportunity in in knowing that prices are being spiked up from venture money. I think 40 cents of every venture dollar in Silicon Valley goes into paid media something like that, meaning that if everyone is looking that way, the opportunities are in these deep subterranean levels of building an organic audience on your own. And for certain kinds of products, writing is the best way to do that. Um, so like I just bought an Aura ring. And one thing that I wish the company did more of is like I want deep in-depth dives on how to run sort of A-B tests and uh, controlled experiments on myself using this thing. And the company hasn't done a particularly good job of that. Maybe with Peloton, I would love to understand at a deep level, how does the body actually move when you're on a bike, right? Because like that Peloton is a brand that skews expensive, probably very high intelligence and stuff like that. And one of my criticisms of Peloton is is it teaching me about how I can be healthier and more and, 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 and more fit? And can I actually understand myself and build a relationship myself through some, some organic content that isn't video, but is deeper with writing. And I think that 
one of the benefits of writing is the depth of it. Sure. The, 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 the depth and the specificity. And so for brands that benefit from that, I think writing is a competitive advantage. I think one great example, a few great examples, but one in particular, uh, I found out about rowing blazers because mm. because Jack Carlson wrote a book called Rowing Blazers. Mm. It was obviously very visually heavy, mm-hmm. but the context of the book was this is a culture that you may or may not have heard of. You could tell by the book that eventually he was going to find a way to amplify that culture through some type of retail project. Like you just knew it. I saw the book. I read it at Barnes and Noble one day, three years ago, maybe. And, you know, two years later, uh, you know, 2PM invests in the company. Uh, what is the culture that he saw? You know, for people like me who have have never gone to an Ivy League school uh, or, or rowed, I know that rowing is important to both of us. Uh, we don't know the culture of the rowing blazer. We don't know the culture of, you know, putting on a specific uniform after a race and sharing a victory or a close defeat with not only your peers, but your, 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 your enemies, almost Mm -hmm. your competitors and coming together and representing your institution, your school, your club through, through an appearance, like through Mm. an actual custom blazer. So, so I just want to pause you there because there's something really interesting that's happening. And it's one of those things that I haven't put a name to it, but I know it's a trend and it's this trend of brands where they're kind of built for a very specific audience originally, but then they end up scaling to the mass market. So rowing blazers is a very good example, maybe built for rowers, but then it kind of expands into a more mass audience to people who aren't rowers who want to kind of tap into that culture. But my favorite example here is Yeti, where Yeti was built for this very small group of super outdoorsy people. You see the same thing with Patagonia sure. and North Face. But then it maintains that 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 quality, that essence of being high performance gear for a very small subset, Canada Goose, another one. But then it it then using that branding scales to just normal people because they want to tap into that. And you're seeing this all over the place and no one has coined a term for this, but it's a fascinating trend. You know, long story short, I think that that's what brands do best. They, they say to yourself, they say to the consumer, this is who we are, mm-hmm. uh, but we're also for everyone. And they toe that line really, really well. Brands are an extension of our identity. That's like what what we do with brands where now that now that there's been such a proliferation of new brands we can use these brands to basically signal who we are and what we believe in right this isn't a new idea but what i think is very interesting is if you take two the number two is just very math math based two to the power of 33 you get a number that is bigger than all the people on planet earth Meaning that if you have 33 different ways to signal your identity, you are by definition an individual because there won't be other people who are like you. And so what we're seeing now is whereas we used to basically – I mean I'm going to really simplify this, but everyone consumes Tide laundry detergent. Everybody consumes – a, a, a Ford car or stuff like that, right? We had a lot more centralization, right? If you look at the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the top 10 advertisers, very, 
very little movement between who those were. The big companies were the Six big of them are Procter & Gamble. Right, exactly. Six of them are Procter & Gamble. But now what's happening is we're seeing this explosion, this sprinkling of all these DTC brands because people have this like intuitive sense that if you can basically express your identity in 33 different ways, you're going to be an individual. And we can have by having 33 different brands we're basically saying i am one of a kind and people really want that right like that is sort of we're we're actually now seeing the 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 sort of extremes the frontier of this you know project post enlightenment of like true liberalism lowercase liberalism in every sense of the word right the freedom of the individual and stuff like that and i think that it's manifesting itself in direct to consumer brands because of how people are able to express themselves through brand in a way that they weren't able to do 10 years ago <clears throat> and so this is a great capstone capstone point uh you, you talked about individualism and it's an underlying theme of this entire conversation because you built an audience as an individual you're seeing in the mass media the power shift to the individual. You're seeing people like Kylie Jenner and Rogan. Yes, you know Kylie is now is now a billionaire um, because of her audience, her individual audience. Joe Rogan is arguably the most powerful person in media. He can move markets economically, politically, socially. Uh, it's rumored that his podcast has done has done essentially 120 million a year plus over the last two years. In advertising because of its unbelievable reach. Now, it's it's it, the next part of this is how do you get individuals to understand that what they did? Listen, no one's ever going to be a Kardashian, but what Joe Rogan did, for instance, is doable, right? The arbitrage opportunity, in my opinion, is the shift from mass to individual. Mm -hmm. So when I when I go back to that tweet about Kylie Jenner's and the analysis about Kylie Jenner's exit, um, the, the the overwhelming negative feedback that I got was, "How dare you say that that's possible?" Mm -hmm. Where I, I was trying to communicate, look at what you can do if you can build an audience. Right. Now, obviously, no one's no one can build. Very few people can build that type of audience, but a derivative of that audience is available. Certainly. If you do the right things. Yep. So basically, I don't want to talk about Jenner and Rogan because we're we're then setting our sights, like to take a Gatsby metaphor. And as I stood there brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come such a long way, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. We're looking at, like, we shouldn't be looking at the green light. We should be looking at some purple light, right? Sure. Like, 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 let's just shift our attention 20 degrees, okay? Same general principle, but let's just lower the stakes. What you want to do, and I believe that with the work that's required, basically anybody can can do this and anyone who's listening to this podcast can certainly do it. What you want to do is you want to pick a small market that is undervalued and that is growing fast. Identify what that thing is, an intersection between small market growing fast. So I have a friend named Yassine 
and he grew up in Casablanca, and he was interning in his summer between junior and senior year. And he's working at a venture capital firm, and he's he's sitting there, and he's saying, my goodness, I can't provide value here. Like we're talking about normal investments, and everyone in the room has more experience than I do. And I applaud his his agency that he took. He said, you know what? I am going to focus on something where my experience stops being a disadvantage and starts being my competitive edge. And he turned his mind to cryptocurrencies. Senior year of college, he had validated in that internship that if he could focus on crypto, ha, now I know something that the people who are way older than me don't. Senior year of college gets obsessed with crypto, really studies Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the other coins, and develops this tremendous expertise because on the internet, due to how much information there is and in markets that change really fast, you can actually become a relative expert at something in a year one year of focused work. And if you can actually write about that and demonstrate your expertise, then people can say, oh my goodness, this person knows what's up. Graduates from college, first job out of college, ARK Invest, a $7 billion fund in New York City where he's director of cryptocurrencies. And he did that in a year and a half from 21 from 20 years old to 21 years old. The power of ideas. The power of ideas and the power of finding an emerging market that is small but it's growing. That way you don't have to do the work because the market is growing just sort of naturally and you position yourself as a leader in that space. Arbitrage opportunity. It's a total arbitrage opportunity. And in your opinion, writing is one of the ways to develop an awareness of the next arbitrage opportunity. That's exactly right. So writing does a couple of things. The feedback that you get gives you a sense of what's interesting and undervalued. Another thing that people forget about is that you don't have to be an expert on something to write about it. That is crucial. Writing online isn't like normal publishing. Normal publishing was you go to Penguin Random House and Penguin Random House says, why are you the expert on this? Why will this scale to the masses, right? Why book publishing is like venture capital. Most books fail. A small percentage of books go on to be a massive success. Writing online is very different. So because... You don't need to be an expert. Rather, what you do is you learn in public and knowledge isn't, you know, knowledge is like food. Information is, is, and food are just an amazing metaphor because with food, the nutrients don't actually impact your body when it goes through your mouth. It's actually in the digestive system. And it's the same thing with knowledge. You can't just consume more and more and more and more knowledge like you're pouring water into a cup and then all of a sudden you know more. You actually have to digest knowledge in the same way that we digest food and you digest knowledge by writing about it. Because as you and I both know, words, once they're static on a page and once like you can sort of outsource the cognitive complexity of an idea because that thing is static and then you can actually move into deeper and deeper layers of the idea that you're exploring and you can't do that by speaking you have to get the words onto the page so that you can grapple at or or so that you can play at the farther and farther frontiers of an idea it's really interesting and one thing that we're going to end with that you mentioned in a previous conversation uh today they mentioned the same thing. <clears throat> the power of 
influencing influencers. Hmm. Not the influencers that we think of in the context, but the people that influence them. Yep. Very well said. So I was talking about, uh, going back to the the Kylie Jenner tweet, how at some time, at some point, um, a larger Twitter audience becomes a detriment. Hmm. And I, I, I don't, I couldn't imagine having a million people like that's just crazy to me. Right. But the person said, but you have to look at the people that listen to what you say, Hmm. because those are the people that are influencing the influencers. How do you going back to what you said about Naval and Tyler, Mm -hmm. you've influenced the people that influence the influencers, Mm -hmm. right? How can brands tap into that? Well, I think that brands have a very solid intuition for how to do this with actually connecting with with different influencers. But I think that what's happening with brands is you're going to have what I call the Uber effect, where with with a traditional company, say like AT&T, you have people who work for the company who are employees, and then you have people who are customers. Uber, so there's two things happening there, employees, customers. Uber is has has three different strands. You have people who work for Uber corporate. You have customers, same thing, but then you also have drivers who are this very ambiguous relationship with with the company. They're not going to be part of the company for the next 10 years, at least most of them, but they're also not customers. Some are employees, some are customers. And with brands, you see the same thing with influencers, where most brands have thought of employees and customers in the same way, but it's about building these really strong relationships with influencers, I think, where influencers become part of the company, similar to how Uber drivers are part of that company. And because they're both insiders and outsiders, they can both promote the company in a very genuine way from the lens of being the corporation and from the lens of being the customer. And I still think that there's arbitrage opportunity in terms of brands working with influencers in really intelligent ways and actually saying, you know what, we're going to scale with you over a period of years. And I mean, I think that this is one of the things that LeBron saw, right, where LeBron turned down some serious money with 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 big corporations so that he could actually be a part of the founding team of different companies and use his audience to have that kind of long-term influencer relationship i think that there's a lot more opportunity so there. when you're t- when you talk about that long-term influencer relationship you're talking about uh feedback loops essentially hmm. so uh you talked about uh i'm, look- I'm thinking about this in the context of of physical cells and the traveling in and out of cells, right? You talked about uh, cell as in the human body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for Uber, the drivers travel in and out, yep. right? They're, they're both. Yep. Uh, for influencers in the context of brands, they're both. They travel in and out. Um, one thing that, to your point about LeBron, one thing that makes him great is he's so in tuned with the culture that he's able to capitalize on the people around him that travel inside and out, his feedback loop is really, really tight, and he makes those changes really quickly. So Spring Hill Entertainment, Mav, Mav Carter, LeBron is an unbelievable organization. His productions have only increased in volume and in quality over the years. And part of that is because of that feedback loop, which again, for the majority of us, we don't have access to. Hmm. And uh, 
the best way to duplicate that is by the prolific nature of producing content around people that can give you feedback in, in, a, in, a, in a quick fashion. Absolutely. You know, we were, we've, we've been talking a little bit about what it takes to, to do this at the individual level. And what, what you want to do, like if I was getting into direct-to-consumer right now, let's see, I would do what I call a personal monopoly, where you just combine one, two, three different things in a way that you almost create your own little industry of ideas, right? Like you create your own your own area of study. And I mean, this is what you've done so brilliantly, right? Like people would say, okay, so we're in an academy. You can either study commerce or you can study media, but you got to pick. You sit back and you say, well, why can't I just study the intersection of both? That's what 2PM is, right? The convergence of content and commerce. And what, for example, my friend Nick Majuli did was he was stuck in a litigation consulting firm 2017 in Boston, didn't want to do this, and had a data background, and also through his job began to study finance. And he started a blog called Of Dollars and Data, where he studied investing by focusing on the data aspect of it. He wrote an article, and it's still going. He's now written every single Tuesday for 170 weeks in a row. One year after he started writing, he ended up getting a job with Ritholtz Wealth Management, which was the firm in the world that he wanted to work with. Josh Brown, right? Josh Brown, the firm that he wanted to work with the most. He's their director of analytics. And what he was able to do was he looked at the landscape and he said, well, there's people who write about investing. There's people who write about data. I'm going to be the person who writes about both. And so what you could do is you could look at this commerce, media, direct-to-consumer landscape, just find two things, maybe three things, find the overlap between them, make sure that you're the only person who's studying that overlap, write every single week for two years, your life won't be the same. 